You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit harvestyorkregion.ca. Amen. Thank you so much for that, you guys. Uh, really uh, appreciate the privilege just to be able to worship with you. Uh, so good. So good to be able to come uh, uh, half a country away and, and worship with like-minded people who love Jesus. I bring greetings from Harvest Bible Chapel, Davenport. Uh, we've been in existence for about 11 years and uh, pra- praising God for the work that he's done among us and really praising God for the work that he's done among you as well and all across our fellowship. As uh, Paul said, uh, we really value and treasure what we have and the partnership of our fellowship and and uh, it's such a privilege for us to be here with you. I want you to know that we've been looking forward to this. So thankful that uh, pa- Paul, your pastor, invited us. I want you to know that I think so highly of him and his wife Sue and uh, the work that God is doing through them amongst you and uh, just would commend uh, to you to love on them and to bless them in any way that you can and certainly to continue to uphold them in prayer as they uh, lead the charge and for the kingdom of God and uh, the uh, name of Jesus. So bless you. Thank you so much for having us. It's been great to spend time with you. Love the fact that we call you friends. So really good. Well, listen, let's continue to worship, shall we? And I, I, I mean that. Let's continue to worship by turning in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 will be our text uh, for this morning. And I trust that you are eager to see what God has for you uh, in it. Isaiah 9, you'll find right about the middle of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find one there in front of you in the the pew in front of you. While you turn there, uh, let me just say I don't think uh, that you need much convincing these days that we live in uncertain times. We just do, don't we? We live in uncertain times. Uh, both personally and culturally, from disaster and disease to bloodshed and violence. It seems like every time you pick up a newspaper, flip through your news app on your phone, or turn on the television, it's gloom and doom all around. It just is. Like when you receive a diagnosis of cancer, it's an uncertain time. Or when you experience the premature death of a loved one, it's an uncertain world. Or hear about the latest tragedy or the latest shooting or the latest terrorist strike or whatever it is. Our lives are filled with those sorts of things. And they tend to rock our world and thrust us into deep darkness if we are not standing on the rock. You know what I'm saying? They tend to do that. In fact, that's the very issue that this passage addresses the issue of gloom and doom and deep darkness and despair and hardship and struggle and all the rest and this passage reminds us of the help and the hope that is found in the rock Jesus the blessings of living your life with Jesus if you will hence the title that I chose. And so with that in mind, you follow along with me as we discover those blessings of living a life with Jesus and starting in verses one and two, and we'll just kind of work our way through it and trust the Lord for what he has in it. Having just said that darkness and distress plague so many, Isaiah the prophet says this in verse one, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Let me just give you the context just a little bit here. Writing 700 years before Christ, Isaiah is saying that the doom and gloom of God's people at that particular juncture in time would not last forever. It wouldn't last forever. 
That's what he means when he says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And then he goes on and elaborates. He says, in the former time, he brought into contempt. He, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. All right, let's just stop there, and I will unwind that in a minute. But first, you need to know that Isaiah 9, in these first seven verses here of Isaiah 9, it speaks of Jesus it speaks of Jesus. You need to know that from the top. Otherwise, you'll miss the vast majority of what it says and how it applies to our life and to your life right now as you listen. And, and I say that, that Isaiah 9 speaks of Jesus, not because that just kind of seems right or as we kind of fit the pieces of Scripture together or, or because that's implied, which is often the case in Scriptures as we put it all together. But in this case, I don't say it for those reasons, but I say it because that's what the New Testament explicitly says. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, we have it here on the screen. It says, now when he, that's Jesus, heard that John, that's John the Baptist, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, you know, that's where Jesus was brought up. When leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, which ought to make bells and whistles go off in your mind based on what we just read in Isaiah 9. He withdrew into the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Colon. And then Matthew quotes what we just read. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Unquote. And so Matthew, one of Jesus' closest followers, identifies him as the one of whom Isaiah spoke. He identifies Jesus as the great light that dawned on the people. The one that Isaiah said would come at some point in the future and cast his light and his influence on them and now us. And so everything we find in this passage here in verses 1 to 7 of Isaiah 9 speaks of Jesus and therefore applies directly to us. I don't need to like bridge the application and bridge from what God was saying through the Old Testament prophets at that time to the people at that time. I don't need to somehow bridge that to our day, which is most often the case when we preach from the Old Testament. And certainly it's just as significant and meaningful for our life when that happens. But I don't need to do that because it refers to Jesus. Jesus lives. We're on this side of the cross. And everything that was said about him then still applies to us now. Like, this is it, and this is for us. In other words, what the people in Isaiah's day only hoped for, we have. What they only imagined, we can experience. And the first part of that that we find here is hope. With Jesus, despair gives way to hope. That's the first blessing that we find articulated. That's the promise. And to see it, 
to see the fact that despair gives way to hope and that that's what's being said here and to fully appreciate it, you need to understand the situation of the day. You see, the Assyrians, got a little map here for you, a little geography and history lesson. The Assyrians, you labeled right there in the middle of the map, were the dominant world power at that time. They were the 800-pound gorilla. And in 733 BC, we know both from biblical and extra-biblical sources, in 733 BC, the Assyrians decided that they were going to go on the warpath and expand their territory as you see it labeled here. And so they began to march in this fertile crescent over here to the northern part of Israel and invaded the northern tribes, the northern territories of Israel in that time, which led as you can well imagine in reading any kind of history or knowing anything about modern day wars, it led to a time of terrible, terrible misery and despair on the part of the Israelites. Just like, as a matter of fact, Isaiah had prophesied just a few verses before chapter 9 at the end of chapter 8. Check it out in your Bible there. Verses 21 and 22 of Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah prophesied what would happen. He prophesied the misery and despair that would happen when the Assyrians came in. He said they, the Israelites, will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. In other words, as they were going to and fro and doing their life like they were in the pits. It was miserable. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. In other words, they'll snub their noses. God, they'll shake their fists. God, how can you possibly love us if you're allowing all of this to happen? And these people are coming in and raping and pillaging our land and our people and our women and our children and, and killing and all the rest that goes along with wartime. And you are doing nothing. And the king that you're putting in place, he's like a zero. They summed their noses. They just turned their back. They shook their fist. They were enraged. They were down. They were in despair. Verse 22, and they will look to the earth. That is, they'll look for help horizontally. Um, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. That's what they'll find. That's what they'll find. Just more of the same. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's despair. That's despair. When darkness closes in and distress breaks out and overflows. Have you been there? Maybe not so much culturally, but have you been there personally? I mean, I know I have several times over in my life. When distress breaks out and darkness closes in. Sometimes because of the uncertainty of the world around us and the things of the fallen world and how they affect me and sometimes because of the people around me and what they would do to me and what they have done and so on. Sometimes because of the things that I've brought on myself and by my own sin and my own stumbling. Darkness and despair. But thank God that's not the end of the story for them or for us because it says in verse 1, but there will be no gloom. In light of the darkness that would come upon them because of the Assyrians, in light of their misery, he says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. It's been dark and hard for God's people, but it's not going to last, Isaiah says. In other words, there's hope. There's hope. Despair will give way to hope, he's saying. And then he elaborates on it, saying in the second part of verse one, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. In other words, God punished them. 
Again, referring to the invasion of the Assyrians who came from the north and first overthrew the area that had been apportioned to the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun, as you can see labeled there, right around the Sea of Galilee. The Assyrians would have been coming in from that fertile crescent, coming down on the north, and the first peoples to bear the brunt of their warpath was those living in Naphtali and Zebulun. People that had been living there for centuries by that time as God had apportioned it out when the Israelites came out of Egypt and eventually entered into the promised land. They were brought into contempt. They were being punished for their desertion of God, for their turning of their back on God, for their turning of their ways well, well before the Assyrians ever came on the scene. They were brought into contempt. But in the latter time, that is, sometime after the day of despair, it says, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Which is just three ways of referring to the same place in the same area. The way of the, the, way of the sea refers, this is now a little closer up map, and, and a little uh, more uh, modern day in terms of the days of Jesus, not the days uh, before that and in Isaiah. And, and you can see here labeled Galilee. Sea of Galilee around here. And the way of the sea was a common way of denoting this land that was between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. That makes sense. And then Isaiah, again referring to the same general area, he says the land beyond the Jordan. That refers to the area to the east of the Jordan River, which connected the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. So this area over here, the land beyond the Jordan. And then Galilee of the nations was a common way in first century Roman times and a little bit before of referring to this area around the Sea of Galilee and to the north. Galilee of the nations. Three ways of referring to the same area as Zebulun and Naphtali from previous years. The point being that at some point in the future, Isaiah was saying, having suffered so much, God would eventually show favor on his people. He would make that area glorious, glorious. In other words, despair would give way to hope. It was a prophetic promise. A prophetic promise for them that continues now. And then in verse 2, he explains how that would happen, how the despair would give way to hope. And this is where it begins to apply directly to us and to our lives. He says, the people who walked in darkness, again, referring to them up in that area of that day, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The very ones, the very ones who lived in a death-like uh, grip of gloom and wickedness and despair would eventually see a great light, a great light, who we know is, standard Sunday school answer, who we know is Jesus. Jesus is that great light that would dawn on them as he continues to dawn on us. The light of the world, as John says in John chapter 8, verse 12. And we know that that's the case because that's exactly where Jesus went and lived, as we saw earlier in Matthew chapter 4. He went from Nazareth, which was right around that area, to the tip of the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. And in so doing, brought his influence to bear, brought his righteousness to bear. 
And he continues to bring it to bear, not just on the people in that day and that time, but in people all over the world in our day and our time as well. The light of the world continues to shine. He lives. We've sung about it just now. Yeah, I imagine you sing about it virtually every single weekend. He lives and he continues to shine. Far from leading an obscure, secluded life, secluded life, like he brought everything to bear. On them has light shone, Isaiah says, and they saw it. They saw it. Those who were looking for the light saw the light. Those who yearned to get out of their darkness saw the light. Those who yearned to get out of their valley of death and the shadow of death and so on, they saw the light. Question is, have you? Have you seen the light? Seriously, have you seen the light? Oh, we use that as a um, phrase and kind of a metaphor and so on, but I'm speaking literally. Have you seen the light, capital L? The light of the world. Or are you living a life of gloom and doom going from one valley to the next, plagued by despair? If so, if that's you, there's good news. There's hope. Because the light still shines. Waiting for you to see him. And waiting for you to repent of your sin. Waiting for you to be with him and find hope. Because with Jesus, despair gives way to hope. I trust you see the light. It's a promise. Despair gives way to hope. But that's just the beginning of the blessings that come in a life with Christ. The second one that we find here is that adversity gives way to joy. With Jesus, not only does despair give way to hope, but adversity gives way to joy. Look at verse three. Isaiah is speaking to God. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy, ding, ding, ding. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Notice here that he uses the past tense. Do you, do you see it? You have multiplied the nation, he says. You have increased its joy. Describing something that God would do in the future with maximum certainty. Does that make sense? Like if you're going to uh, describe something that is going to happen in the future with 100% uh, maximum certainty, you would do so, you would refer to that thing yet to come as if it already happened. The prophets do it all the time, kind of referred to as the prophetic purpose, perfect tense, if you will. They refer to something that's yet to come with absolute certainty, such absolute certainty that they refer to it in the past tense, which is why he says here, you have increased the joy of the nations when as yet the nation hasn't even had the 800-pound gorilla come upon it. That's certainty. That's a promise that you can bank on. And that's something that God was doing, was adding to his people, the nation. He was multiplying his people, which we know from the New Testament he does by forgiving people of their sin and adopting them into his family. You see, God added to his nation in the Old Testament largely, but not exclusively, but largely through ethnicity, through the birth rate of the Jewish people. But now on this side of the cross, God is adding to his nation, his people, his kingdom, his kingdom uh, by ushering in and adopting into his family 
people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He continues to multiply his nation, and we're a part of it if you know him as Lord and Savior. The coolest part of which is that we get joy in the process, which the Bible refers to as joy unspeakable. Joy that really you can't even put words to. Listen, you know you're walking with Jesus if you have joy that you can't even describe, let alone people around you. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Joy like that at the harvest, it says, which if you don't live in an area like we live in, in Iowa where we drive about two miles and we're in the middle of cornfields, if you don't, you're not familiar with the whole farming thing, that may not mean anything to you. Or it's joy when the spoils of conquered people are divided up. I'm pretty sure that not very many of us in here, if anybody has ever experienced that kind of a joy, it would be in our day and age more like the joy that you have when you get an unexpected bonus at work an unexpected promotion, uh, when you have a baby, or when, surprise, you have twins, that kind of joy, or when you celebrate a birthday and you get all kinds of gifts, or at Christmas time, or what have you. Like, that's the kind of joy that comes with Jesus. And he's the means of it. Because of him and with him, with his light shining in our lives, adversity gives way to joy. It doesn't necessarily go away, don't get me wrong. We will have trials and tribulations. The scripture is explicit to us. We will have trials and tribulations as the followers of Christ. And so the adversity won't necessarily go away, but it will give way and it does give way to joy, the joy of the Lord that is our strength. I can't think of a better example of that than a guy named Nate Kittleson. Nate was a young man. Uh, he was an intern in our church back in 2012, pictured here with his sister, and uh, he was an intern with us for about eight months until one day uh, he came into work. He was very uh, ill, uh, started running a fever, sweating, chilling, and all of that. We said, dude, you need to go to the doctor. And finally he agreed. About 10 o'clock in the morning, he went to, to his doctor. And his doctor was like, there's something really gravely wrong with you. He sent him immediately to the emergency room. The emergency room started running tests on him. He said, this is beyond us. We need to send you and admit you to the hospital to some specialists to see what's going on because he was deteriorating quickly and by the end of the day they had determined that he had a rare form of leukemia it happened that quickly it came on him that fast 20 year old lively strong strapping young man with a lot ahead of him at least we thought and so they decided, he and his family decided that he ought to move back home. The very next day, uh, his sister and brother-in-law put him in a car and they drove back uh, to South Dakota to the eight-hour eight treatment, uh, eight-hour trip to get treatment there in his uh, local area so that he could be taken care of by his parents. But as the weeks went by, and despite the various treatments, it became more and more obvious that Nate wasn't getting better. In fact, he was getting worse very quickly, so much so that within a few weeks, he became a former shadow of himself. And I think we've got another, here you go. He lost his hair, largely because of the treatment. He lost all kinds of weight. You can see there in his right shoulder, became just a former shadow of himself. Some of it was because of the treatment, but most of it was because of the leukemia that was beginning to ravage his body in a very, very quick manner, rare form that it was. But here's the thing I want you to understand about Nate. Though his health waned, his joy didn't. His joy didn't. And I gotta tell you, it was, it was so strange that it was supernatural. 
I mean, he had joy that would not go away, that would not give way, that nothing, like despite the adversity of his intense pain and suffering, his joy was rock solid. Why? Why? How? How could that be? The answer is because he saw the light. Years before, uh, Nate had embraced Jesus and found him to be closer than a brother. He embraced him as Lord and Savior, bringing him joy in the midst of his suffering because Jesus was in the midst of him. That's it, that's it. He had joy in the midst of his suffering. His suffering didn't go away, but he had the joy because Jesus was there with him, assuring him day in and day out, minute by minute, that God knew and that God cared and that God keeps his own. That's what happens with Jesus. Adversity doesn't necessarily go away in your life, but it does give way to an abundance of joy that becomes your strength in the midst of the sapping storm of adversity. Do you know the joy? Do you have the joy of the Lord? You do if you have Jesus. It's a blessing that comes with his presence in your life. And I trust that you'll know it more and more as days go by. That's the second blessing. Here's the third. With Jesus, oppression gives way to relief. Oppression gives way to relief. Thank God for that. Look at verse four. He starts out by saying four. It's the first of three fours there uh, because. In other words, he now begins to give us the reason that all of these things will happen when this light dawns. He says, for the yoke of his burden, that is the burden of God's people, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, that is the means of keeping them subdued, the rod of his oppressor, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian. You've broken the rod of the oppressor, the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder. You've broken this 800-pound gorilla that has come upon. Again, he's speaking of something yet future in the past tense to show the maximum certainty that it will happen. And he says that you, God, are going to break all of the things that subdue and suppress and oppress your people. You're going to do away with them just like you did in days gone by on the day of Midian which refers to that time 600 years before Isaiah. Isaiah was 700 years before Jesus. The day of Midian was 600 years before Isaiah. And it was that time when God used Gideon and 300 others. Remember the time where he whittled them down from like, what was it, 22,000 or something like that? I don't remember the exact number. You can look it up. But like any of you are scared, go on home. Bunch of them left. And there's some other litmus tests that way. Eventually they got down to how they drank the water. And, And 300 of them were left. And they joined Gideon and you need to understand here that this was part of the lore of the people at that time in the northern part of Israel, this whole day of Midian thing. Like this was a thing that they would talk about time and time and time again, the victory that happened because those 300 men were from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, no less. And so here's Isaiah saying that you're going to break the oppression of your people just like you did in that day when he used 300 men plus Gideon to overthrow 135,000 in the Midian army. That's the day of Midian. And that's what God promises through Jesus. He promises to displace oppression with relief. Personal oppression 
and worldwide oppression one day when he returns. Just like he's done in days of old. Listen, if you haven't yet seen it in your own life, God does this. And every time he does it in my life, it increases my trust that he'll do it again. And when I look back in the people of old and we're a part of, of them now and, and who we are in Christ as we are one grafted into the same tree that way, we can look back on the days of Midian that way and we can take comfort and we can take certainty and surety in, in that God will do the exact same thing and even greater things in the days yet future. He's done it in the past in our lives individually. He's done it in the past worldwide scale. He'll continue to do it in the future just like he said. You can bank on it. You can bank on the fact that he will end your purposeless way of life, the yoke that burdens. That's right now when you turn to him. You can bank on the fact that he will ease the abuse of persecution, the staff for your shoulder, that he will thwart the hostility of tyrants, the rod of oppressors. God has done it. He will continue to do it for those who walk with Jesus. See, with Jesus in your life, you ought to find that the oppression of your guilt gives way to the relief of forgiveness every single time. Every single time you sin and stumble and you repent of that, you ask for his forgiveness, you make a commitment to turn and you bear fruit of that repentance, you ought to find that your guilt gives way to the relief of forgiveness. That's what happens with Jesus. It's what he does. You ought to find that the pain of your emotions gives way to the comfort of rest. You ought to find that the difficulty of your situation gives way to the relief of resolution. You ought to find that the oppression of sickness gives way to the relief of healing. It, it happens not every single time in the physical realm and not certainly in our timing. And sometimes we have to wait until Jesus returns or we die and go into his presence for the oppression to be completely re relieved in our lives. But loved one, you can bank on the fact that it will happen. One way or another, eventually, eventually, every single aspect of the oppression in your life, every single aspect of the persecution, every single aspect of the struggle that you are going, to, going through will eventually give way to the relief of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen in full when he returns. And in the meantime, it's already ours with certainty now because with Jesus, oppression gives way to relief. Amen? I can't say that any other way, but I hope that you receive that. And I hope that you live your life accordingly. And that too ought to fire up your hope in a massive, massive way. It's the third blessing that we have. Here's the fourth. With Jesus, strife gives way to peace. Strife gives way to peace. Look at verse five. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Uh, notice again, he starts it with the word for. In other words, this is the reason that all these things uh, are going to happen when Jesus comes on the scene. And the fire here most likely refers to a useful fire um, conveying a time of peace. So that with the advent of Christ and the victory that he secured on the cross, that which was previously used for destructive purposes, like battle boots and military uniforms, is now going to be used for constructive purposes. That's what Isaiah was getting across. That God is in the business of redeeming that which is spoiled. That God is in the business of redeeming the things that were used for destruction and they're now going to be used for construction. And that's the whole idea that we find elsewhere in the Old Testament where he says that spears are going to be uh, turned into plowshares. It's he's in the business of redeeming that which was used for destruction into that which is used for construction, for good purposes. He's in the business of redeeming that which is 
dirty and making it clean. It's going to happen on a worldwide scale with the second coming of Christ and it's already happening on an individual scale as a result of his first coming. God is redeeming people and he's bringing peace where it didn't exist before. Anybody know that? I know you do if you know the Lord. God's in the business of redeeming people and places and bringing peace where it wasn't before. I love the story of Josh McDowell in that respect. If you're familiar, familiar with him, you probably know Josh McDowell, pictured here with his wife, as a famous apologist or a defender of the Christian faith. But what you may not know is that before Christ, he was just the opposite. In fact, Josh McDowell was a bitter, angry man whose sole purpose was to disprove the claims of Christianity and, and make its adherents look bad. That was his overtly stated purpose in life. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to like bring shame and humiliation on us as we uh, bank our lives on this word and on the living word, Jesus himself, and wanted to make us look bad. And so he decided one day that in order to do that better, he would read the Bible that we believe. Oops. Oops. Sharper than any two-edged sword, isn't it? And dividing to soul and spirit. And that's exactly what it did with him. And he was convicted along the way. And along the way, he saw the light. He gave his life to Christ. And it changed. And Jesus changed his course 180 degrees for the rest of eternity. So that now, Josh McDowell spends his life and his time trying to convince people of the truth. Writing books like uh, More Than a Carpenter and Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Is saying things like Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. And he's definitely not a lunatic because we wouldn't have heard the, the, the rational things come out of his mouth that we heard. He's definitely not, not a, 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 a liar in that respect because there were people in the day and age in which the scriptures were written who could have stood up and said, uh, that's not true. But they didn't. Which leaves only one option. He's Lord. That's what Josh McDowell is all about now. That's what I'm all about. That's what you're all about, I trust, as you live your life for Jesus. It's spreading the good news, the grace of God. How many of you could testify to the same that with Jesus in your life, strife gave way to peace? Maybe it was in your marriage. It was in your family, your extended family. Maybe it was at work. Maybe it was a coworker who you were at odds with. But suddenly with Christ in your life, things began to change. When you finally believed, you saw the light and something happened and peace filled your heart. You started showing kindness to everyone instead of those to whom you just needed something from. Am I right? That happened? I know it's happened with me and continues to happen. Because that's what happens with Jesus. That's what happens with Jesus in your life. Strife gives way to peace. The strife and enmity between you and God gives way to peace. And the strife and enmity between you and others gives way to peace. It's peace. I trust you know peace. Here's number five. With Jesus, man gives way to God. And oh, what a blessing this is. With Jesus, man gives way to God. This is the Christmas verse that you see on Christmas cards all the time. And I trust that it will have new meaning for you based on the context in which we find it. 
says four to us, it's the third four, the third basis for why these things are going to happen and, and have happened and are happening. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. In other words, the light will dawn, the light will shine on those who are in the midst of gloom and doom because a child is born and a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Once again, it's not just any old light that will shine to accomplish these things of hope and joy and peace and relief and so on. It's not just any old person that will come. It's Almighty God, the Son of God. Or as Isaiah said it in chapter 7, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A sign of what? A sign of salvation. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. God is with us. And so with Jesus, with the advent of Christ, we give way and gave way in our world to God in the flesh. That's the idea. Isaiah prophesied it. We've seen it. And we continue to live it. With Jesus, man gives way to mighty God, full of strength and power. With Jesus in your life, you give way to a wonderful counselor who offers wisdom and guidance beyond yourself. With Jesus, you give way to an everlasting father who never leaves you or forsakes you or fails to give you exactly what you need at exactly the right time. With Jesus, you give way to the Prince of Peace who brings rest. That's the God who Jesus is. That's the God who, if you've given your life to Jesus, he's the one, and that's the one who you have given way to. That's the one who you have surrendered to. And it says here that the government shall be upon his shoulder, as in he alone will carry the burden of his rule and reign. He alone will exercise authority over his kingdom. He alone has the power to do so. A kingdom to, that he came to establish, catch this, spiritually in the hearts and lives of those who love him, and a kingdom that he will establish physically when he returns over all the earth. It's going to happen it's happening now spiritually in the hearts and lives. Jesus is building his church. He's building his kingdom. He's multiplying his nation spiritually in our hearts and souls. It's happening now in people. And it's going to happen over the whole earth when he returns. Voluntary or not. So no matter how you slice it, with Jesus, man truly gives way to God. The only question is, when are you going to bend the knee? Are you going to bend the knee now? and give your life to Christ and give way to Him and surrender yourself to Him right now before He returns so that you can enjoy these blessings now and you can have life to the full and life forever with Him in the bliss of heaven and a new heaven and a new earth? Are you going to bend the knee now and acknowledge it and give way now? Or are you going to snub your nose and be forced to bend the knee later? The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone. Problem is that if you wait till later, it's too late. You'll be forced to acknowledge his lordship, but you won't receive the blessings. You won't receive life. In fact, you'll be banished from his presence forever and ever in the throes of hell. Either way, either way, you're going to give way to Jesus. 
Why not give way now and give your life to him and begin to live for him and with him and enjoy the blessings thereof? With Jesus, man gives way to God. Here's the last. With Jesus, uncertainty gives way to assurance. With Jesus, uncertainty gives way to assurance. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. The kingdom of David was prophesied to be a kingdom that would last forever. It's the very kingdom that Jesus came, redefined, expanded, and just blew out to entire universal proportions. He says, of that kingdom and of his throne, there'll be no end to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And now catch this last sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If it wasn't good enough for, for you and that Isaiah said this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the first part of verse 7, he adds this under the inspiration of the Spirit. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of God Almighty will do this. The power and the passion of the God of the universe, the creator of everything, will accomplish these things. Have you ever run into somebody who's like over-the-top passionate about what they do? Or, or, or the thing that they sell, uh, sell? Like, you know, a passionate salesperson? There's been a few occasions in my life that I've run into somebody like that. When we were first married, like this is the, the, the example par excellence, at least in my mind. When we were first married, a Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman came to the door when I was at work. He knocked on the door, and, and Becky was talking with him. Eventually, she let him do a demonstration and everything. And she was like so blown away by the guy. And by the way, I'm not disparaging you if you're a Kirby salesman. Like, you're awesome. They're awesome vacuum cleaners. The only problem is, we were young and dumb in that age. We're still a little bit young and dumb, maybe old and dumb. But nonetheless, we didn't have any money to spend on a Kirby vacuum cleaner that way. And so here she was like, yeah, man, this is awesome. And she said, but I can't make this decision on my own. It's just too big, too much money, and so on. So can you come back? when my husband comes home, he gets home at 5.30. So I walk in the door, 5.30. Hey, honey, how are you doing? Doing great. Good day. Hey, listen, there's a vacuum cleaner salesman that's going to be here in just a few minutes. It's an awesome vacuum cleaner. I think we should buy it. I told him that we would like to. I'm like, oh my goodness. And so after a bit of a knockdown drag out in those uh, uh, few minutes while we were arguing about whether he would come back or not, which had nothing to do with whether he was going to because the guy was on his way. But after a few minutes of that, sure enough, knock on the door. Eventually, I let the guy in. And within five minutes, he had me eaten out of the palm of his hand. And within 30 minutes, he walked out with a check and I started vacuuming. Why? Why did I capitulate so quickly? Because that dude was zealous about vacuum cleaners. And he would not be denied. He had the foot in the door, and like, we could do nothing else except say yes. And here's what I want you to know. That's a drop in the bucket. His zeal and passion for vacuum cleaners is a drop in the bucket compared to the passion and zeal of God Almighty to accomplish His work, as these verses say. Drop in the bucket compared to the oceans of zeal and power and authority to do what He promises in us and through us and to us. 
the things to expand his rule and reign, to spread his peace, to establish his kingdom, and to sustain his realm. He is passionate about it, God is, and he will not be deterred. So passionate that he became flesh and eventually died to make it happen. Is that zeal or what? That's zeal. That's zeal. And thank God Almighty that we get to be a part of it. And that zeal brings assurance. That's assurance. That God would go to such lengths and such heights and such depths to fulfill his promises. That's assurance and you can have it. You can have it if you give way to him. If you open up the doors of your heart and receive him into your life. If you see the light and walk in the light just like Nate did, who, by the way, went home to be with the Lord shortly after that last photograph. A 20-year-old young man, full of peace and hope and joy and blessed, blessed assurance. Because that's what happens with Jesus. It was so momentous for us that our worship team wrote a song with the Vertical Church Band titled, He Has Won. Maybe you've heard it on their first album that they released. It's about Nate. It was inspired by Nate. That death was swallowed up in victory, just like the Apostle Paul wrote. And Nate was an example of it par excellence. Again, because Jesus was with him. I trust that you know the same. Let's pray. Lord, for those who are already yours, those with whom you dwell right now, God, would you fill them with all joy and peace in believing? And would you cause them to abound in hope as they trust in you more and more? As they just swell with the goodness of these blessings more and more? As they experience your grace and your goodness more and more? Father, give them all joy and peace and hope and relief and all the rest. And for those, Lord, who don't know you, God, would you awaken their soul with the truth of your word? Would you use these words to awaken faith in them? And would you hear their prayer of faith and repentance right now? As they call on you, as they confess their sin, as they receive you as Lord and Savior of their lives. We love you, Jesus, for all that you are, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We love you and we worship you. It's in your name that we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.